Well, good evening. It is a joy to be a part of this study in the Epistle of 1 John. I'm definitely excited about this study. It, it is timely. Uh, we've been told through our study in Sunday school that in the last days apostasy will reign and it will take place. And, and this is a good book to catch ourselves in that regard. So open your Bibles tonight to the book of 1 John and you can narrow your, your way into chapter 2. We'll be around chapter 2 in the beginning of uh, chapter 3 tonight. Tonight we, we are beginning our fourth message, our fourth study, our fourth uh, uh, sermon in this First John series. And we, we've been stepping through a series of tests, of course. If you remember, John's laying out these tests for believers to examine themselves. And, and that's really the call to understand assurance and also apostasy. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 was very specific. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith examine yourselves. So that's what we're doing in this series, and that's what we're doing this evening. So your Bibles are open to 1 John 2. If you recall, we've, we've studied a couple of these tests already. Uh, Andy opened us up in our, our first test on the test of worldliness, and if you recall, he expanded that test of worldliness into some subcategories or some subtests as well. He expanded into the test of, of light or morality. He expanded into the test of love, looking at behavior, he expanded into the test of righteous living and also to loyalty as well. So much appreciated that. And then last week, last Sunday night, Ben opened the word in 1 John and looked at the test of obedience, obedience to God's commands. Another important test. Tonight, though, as professing believers, we need to ask ourselves another question. And this is going to be a very difficult question. It's a difficult exam question. The question we're going to ask ourselves tonight is, do we look like Christ? Do we look like Christ? The title of tonight's message is Resemble Your Redeemer. Resemble Your Redeemer. Maybe the imperative side of the question. And, and this test is going to be related to the resemblance, our resemblance as professing believers of the Son of God. Do we look like Christ each day? Do we do what he does? This may be a familiar question. We've actually been asked this question before in, in a form. Maybe some of you remember in the, in the 1990s, there was a popular uh, bracelet wristband that had four letters on it. WWJD, what would Jesus do? I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of you probably remember that. It was particularly noteworthy among youth. And it, it asked us a question similar to what we're, we're asking ourselves tonight. It was a popular reminder to think about one's actions on a daily basis in the midst of daily conduct. John reminds us to think about our actions daily as well. So your Bibles are open to 1 John chapter 2. Let's begin reading at the end of verse 5, a very short passage tonight. John says in 1 John 2, the end of verse 5, By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. As professing believers, we want to note three main things from this text regarding our salvation this evening. Three main things. First, we want to look back a little bit first. And as we look back, note first the claim of salvation. The claim of salvation. John writes, he says, By this we know that we are in him, the one who says he abides in him. So when we talk about the claim of salvation, that claim is that we are apart to Jesus. We'll flesh that out, but the claim of salvation is that professing believers are apart to Jesus. 
you can put this in your parentheses. It's recall your position. Recall your position. We need to refresh on this claim of salvation before we get started. It's probably familiar to you, but the believer's position is very important tonight because it's going to tie directly into the test. There's many ways we can describe this claim of salvation in the believer's position in Christ, but from John's immediate context, we'll only look at two tonight. Two of these claims, apart to Jesus, set apart to him. First note, the true believers abide in Christ. True believers abide in Christ. This is the language that John uses. He said, by this we know that we are in him, the one who says he abides in him. Ben covered this term abide last week, but just as a refresher, what does this term abide mean? It carries the idea of rest or remain or dwell. It refers to an intimate relationship. Paul, Paul takes this relationship and calls it the union we have with Christ. The union. Donald Burdick, in his commentary, he says this, quote, it speaks of a permanent and intimate relationship rather than a temporary superficial association, end quote. There's a relationship there. You're remaining or dwelling in Christ. We note that the tense is present, noting that it's a continual action. It's a continual remaining. This term carries the idea of sustenance. John, of course, has written three epistles and the gospel as well. If you will, hold your finger here in 1 John, but turn back to John 15. This, is, this term abide, John uses it very frequently in his epistle. You'll see it as you read through. If you've already read through 1 John in the series, you've probably noted it numerous times, but he also uses it in his gospel frequently as well. John chapter 15, let's read verses 4 through 8 as we think of this term abiding and what it means. It's a very fa uh, famous parable. Jesus says in John 15, or John says, excuse me, Jesus says in John 15, 4, Jesus is speaking, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Did you follow that? If the branch is in the vine, if the Christian is in Christ, apart to Christ, what happens? He bears fruit. The, the vine is what gives it sustenance. The vine is what allows that branch to produce the fruit. If that branch is not attached to the, the vine, it dries up. It's worthless. So it's very important that we consider this in light of our Christian walk. The fruit is evidence that the branch is in the vine. If the branch is in the vine, it will produce fruit because of the vine. If the branch does not produce fruit, it's not attached to the vine. There's a direct relationship there. The picture, Burdick will continue, the picture is one of a fruit-bearing branch that stands in a continuing vital relationship to the vine. So we find that true believers abide in Christ. That's the claim. The claim is that they abide in Christ. They're predisposed to do what? To bear fruit. And we know that fruit means good works. 
Believers that are in the vine, truly in the vine, getting sustenance from the vine, naturally they're predisposed to produce good works or fruit. So true believers abide in Christ. That's the claim. But there's another claim that is made here. Look over at the end of chapter 2, 1 John 2, back in 1 John 2. Look at verse 29. John writes, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. If we think about this claim, not only do we note that true believers claim where true believers abide in Christ, but we also know that true believers are born of God. They're born of God. John is very keen on this terminology, and we're familiar with it, of course, again, from his gospel, looking back specifically in John 3 with the discussion with Nicodemus. We won't take the time to look there. But what does born of God really mean, and why are we focusing it here in this text? It's because of its relationship to the claim. We can note a couple of things of true believers that are born of God. First, we note when we think about being born, birth brings change, does it not? Birth brings change, and the change is of conversion. Birth brings the change of conversion. What is conversion? It's, it's change. Think about maybe your work situation and your medical benefits if you have them. You can change them, of course, every year, but you can also change them at, at another time, at a life event, the birth of a child or something. It's a major event, is it not? Birth is a major event. A professing believer talks of change but a possessing believer has actually undergone a change. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. A new creature. MacArthur will comment on that verse. He says, quote, Of course, we can come to Jesus just as we are, but if we come away from conversion just as we were, how can we call it conversion? End quote. It's so true. Conversion is a change, and there has to be a change. If a believer is born of God, that believer will now look different because there's been a change, there's been a conversion. It's interesting to note that believers are not simply called children, but they actually become children of God through spiritual birth. Look at 1 John 3. After John makes the comment that anyone who practices righteousness is born of him, he breaks out. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God? And such we are. He doesn't stop that believers are just called children of God. He says, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Birth brings about change. It's interesting. The end of that verse that that change, that true conversion, being born into the family of God is so dramatic. What does it say? It says, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world does not even recognize a true believer because there's been such a change in their life. They don't understand it. So birth brings about change. It's conversion. But not only does it bring about change, it brings about new characteristics. It brings the characteristics of Christ to the believer. It brings his characteristics. Andy mentioned family characteristics last week, if you remember. And this being uh, born into a family, there's appearances that come with that, traits, mannerisms even. It makes us recognizable within a family. Believers also inherit traits from God. 
We saw that in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Do you see the connection? If he is righteous, everyone that practices righteousness is born of him who is righteous. There's a trait. It's an example of God's characteristic being passed down from God to a true believer that is obtained through the new spiritual birth. Verdict will comment on this. He says, quote, the reason why it can be rightly assumed that this likeness will be present in the life of every believer is to be found in the verb has been born. The righteousness of the father is passed on to his child. This family trait is not merely a matter of imitation of the father. It is rather a matter of an inherited family characteristic. End quote. God is righteous. So everyone who is born of him is what? Righteous. He's inherited that trait. We already mentioned that because of these traits, but the result of God's characteristics also comes down. We, we have an example in righteousness, but we see the results, the recognition. Again, because someone is born of him in, in uh, John 3, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, for this reason the world does not know us. Why? Because it did not know him. The world did not recognize Christ. So any of those that are born of God are also unrecognizable to the world because we're in the same family Glenn Barker will comment on this verse. He says, because the believers are the children of God, the author warns them that the world is unable to recognize them or relate to them. That should not surprise them, because neither did the world recognize God. The failure of the world to know God is one of the basic themes of the Gospel of John. End quote. And what John is saying here is, if you are a child of God, you will be recognized as a child of God, not as a child of disobedience, as Paul calls those who have not come to know him in Ephesians 2.2. So we contrast a child of God and a child of disobedience. There is clear recognition between the two, or lack thereof. So we've recalled the believer's claim to salvation, apart to Jesus. Believers are set apart. They're set into God's family. They abide within him. They're born of him. They've been converted and changed in inherited characteristics of God, leaving believers, what? Positioned for good works. But secondly, we need to remember something else before we get to the test. Not only the claim of salvation of being a part, but we need to recall the consummation, number two, the consummation or the goal of salvation. What is the consummation or the goal of salvation? It's perfect like Jesus. Perfect like Jesus. In the parentheses to the side of your notes, you can write purpose, recall your purpose, Let's keep reading in 1 John 3. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's important for us to remember the goal at the end of life. The goal at the end of life, the goal at the end of the Christian walk is what? It's personal perfection. It's personal perf perf perfection. It's glorification in theological terms. When Christ appears at the end of the age, true believers will be what? They will be like him. We'll be like him. What is Christ like? Well, John gives us descriptors of, of Christ. In verse 3, we just read he is pure. In verse 5, we read that he has no sin. In verse 7, we read that he is righteous. As children of God, there's a currently a family resemblance, but it's not yet complete. 
that day is still coming when he appears. So when Christ appears at the end of the age, we will be like him. We will be like him in personal perfection. That's the goal, is it not? Or the hope of every believer? We can look back to Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, looking forward, he also glorified. That's the goal. That's the goal. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That's the end goal of the believer's life, to be perfect like Christ. Recall the consummation of salvation. It's glorification, to be like Christ. But that's not the full goal. There's the goal at the end of the life, but we also have to note that there's a goal during this life as well, a goal during this life. And that goal is positive progression, positive progression. You may call this progressive sanctification. What does John say in verse 3? He says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When we look towards that goal of someday being glorified with Christ and we see Christ for what he truly is, what is the natural response? To purify oneself, to become more like him in this life. Purity is the goal. Transformation is the process. This purifies a continual process. John's already been clear in his attentions in this book. He writes in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There needs to be progression in this life. John's saying that a child of God does not suddenly look like the perfection of his Savior. It's a transformation. It's a process. He begins to look like Christ and grows into looking more like Christ throughout this life. Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If the branch has been born into the vine, the vine provides sustenance to that branch, and that branch grows and produces fruit and becomes more and more like the vine. There's positive progression in this life. So we claim to have Christ, to abide in him, to be born of him, to be a part like Jesus. And because of the true believers, or excuse me, we know the end goal is glorification, and we are progressing to look more like Christ through progressive sanctification. How do we show that in this life? And that brings us to our third and final point tonight, the confirmation of salvation. The confirmation of salvation. And that's walk like Jesus. Walk like Jesus. In the parentheses, you can say, recall or test your priority. Your priority. Back to 1 John 2, verse 6. John says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. He must walk in the same manner as he walked. The true believer's position in Christ and the true believer's progression toward Christ should make it apparent what a true believer's earthly life looks like, like Christ's. Based on the claim and the consummation that we look forward to, the confirmation should be easy, should it not? The vine is in the branch, or sorry, the branch is in the vine. The branch is getting its sustenance from the vine. The believer is a child of God. He's inherited the traits of God. The traits and the power provided, the growth should take place and fruit should be produced. 
Yet what do we still find here in verse 6? We find, letter A, that there's a requirement for resemblance because it's not that easy. There's a requirement for resemblance. This is not only a test to look like Christ, but also a command. It's a command. It's a requirement that true believers look like Christ, their Savior. What is John saying? He's saying something very simple. He's saying, walk the talk. Walk the talk. If you say that you are in Christ, then act like Christ, because that's how your claim to salvation is truly vetted out. That's how it's vetted out. Walk like Christ. There's a requirement for resemblance. As we break this down, note first there's a directive given, and that's to walk. The directive given is to walk. The one who says in verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk. He ought himself to walk. Ought means a continual obligation. It's in the present tense, he ought. There's a linear active connection. It's a continual obligation that a professing believer must take on. It links abiding to what has to happen. Believers are to walk. What is walk? They ought to walk. We've seen the term walk already. In chapter 1, verse 6, walking in light, it's a common figurative term we're familiar with describing the process of living, one's daily conduct. So what is the directive given? It's walk. You must walk. You ought to walk. But note, secondly, that there's also a direction given, a direction given, and that's like Christ, like Christ. The directive is to walk, and the direction is like Christ. Verse 6 says, he ought also or he ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, referring to Christ, walked. Believers are to walk, to conduct themselves daily as Christ did, as he walked. Recall the claim of the believer. He abides in Christ. There's empowerment. He's, he's born in God. He has a hope of perfection. He has a hope of perfection, and he's empowered God's prepared the believer for this mandate already. The believer's prepared. He has everything that he needs to walk like Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, as a result of all that you have, be imitators of Christ. Be imitators of Christ. We know what imitation looks like, do we not? From a child, we know what imitation looks like. You've You've seen it many times. You're driving down the road, or maybe it's happened to you that someone's out mowing the lawn, the father's out mowing the lawn, and what do you see behind him? The son or the daughter with the little plastic push mower, following, imitating. That's the idea. The instruction's been given, right? That parent's given the instructions, follow, cut, we're going to cut the grass, follow. They've given them the tools. They have their lawnmower. It may not actually cut, but they have the tool to look like that. They have instruction, they have the tools, and then they also have the example to follow because usually that child follows behind the parent. That's the idea here. The believer has the instruction, the believer has the tools, the believer has the traits, the believer has the example in Christ. The believer ought to walk. The direction's given like Christ. You may ask, what is the manner in which Christ walked that we're supposed to emulate? Well. We could sail in any direction with this one. It's like an open sea before Noah and the ark. Anything we can go to. We could focus on Christ's holiness, his activity, his self-denial, his lowliness, his tenderness. We could focus on his devotion or his delight in God. 
But we're in this text, so let's focus on this text in the context. And what is the immediate context? What is the immediate context that John is using to say, look at Christ in this case, walk like him? Look back to verse 3 of chapter 2. John writes, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner as he walked. In this context, Christ sets the example for what the believer is to do. The believer is to keep the commandments, to keep God's commandments. The believer is to walk in obedience to the commands of the Father. Jesus set this example for us. We can read throughout the pages of Scripture what Jesus did. Even this morning we covered in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Christ was obedient to the command, the directive of his Father, to the point of death. In John 14, 31, But so the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Jesus has set the example. But in this context, the believer is to obey the commandments, following Jesus' example. So we ask the question, what is the true believer to obey? What is he to obey? What are God's commandments here? It's interesting that the terminology in this passage is not referring to the Old Testament law, namos, nomos. It's not referring to that law. It's referring to the divine moral commands, entele is the Greek word used. It's the divine moral commands, the commandments of God, his precepts. The term is keep is not simple obedience, but it evokes watchful care or guardianship, protection of the precepts. It's not just a check the box, I kept the commandments. It's a guard the commandments. It's guard the divine moral precepts that have been given from the Father. So true believers, if they are not liars, keep God's divine moral commands. In 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, As obedient children, do not, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. So we've asked the question, what does the true believer obey? We may ask another question, how well does the true believer need to obey? How well does he need to follow Christ? How well are we to walk like him? Refer to Donald Burdick again, he says, quote, There can be no genuine, intimate relationship such as dwelling in him unless there is also a similarity of life. The similarity called for is not merely a broad general likeness, but is rather an exact duplication. An exact duplication. That's how we're supposed to walk, as Christ walked. Note that we must follow this direction, but it's important to note from the context that this direction does not mandate perfection. It can't. We've already read in, in 1 John 1, 9, we know that John says, I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, what does he say in verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John knows that we will sin. We will sin. Charles Spurgeon chimes in on this. He says, quote, We cannot be Christians unless we are in Christ, and we are not truly in Christ unless we in him, unless in him we live and move and have our being. And the life of Christ is lived over again by us according to our measure. 
according to our measure. We've been given the tools, we've been given the directions, we've been given the traits, but it's still according to our measure because why we are still sinful beings. We're not perfect yet. We're still imperfect humans that have not appeared yet as what we will be someday, as John writes. So we find that there's a requirement for resemblance. It gives us a marching directive. It gives us a marching direction. But next, let's note, secondly, letter B. There's a route to resemblance. There's a route to resemblance. Not only is there a requirement, but there's also a route or a path. How do we walk as he walked? We've noted in the context that the believer should walk in obedience to God's commands. He needs to obey the commands of God just as Christ did. So what does that mean? Well, simply put, if you enter through the narrow gate, you need to follow the narrow path. There's not an opportunity to enter through the narrow gate and go down the broad path. You can't claim Christ one time in your existence long time ago and say, because of this experience many years ago, I am in Christ. You can't claim that. That's the narrow gate. You can't go through that gate. You can't look at that one point in your life and continue to walk down the broad path. You have to walk the narrow gate because it has to be a continual process of walking in your daily conduct. The broad path leads to darkness. The narrow path leads to hope. So what's the route that we must take to resemblance of Christ? Well, first, note that we need to align. Align your actions to Christ. Align your actions to Christ. This is a matter of movement. It's a pattern of life. What you do matters, John says, and it matters a lot. It matters whether you just profess Christ or if you truly possess Christ. Your deeds, your work should align with Christ, and they reveal what you truly are. James speaks of this in James 2.17, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. For just as the body, in verse 26, is without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is also dead. There have to be works to back up your profession. So how do we walk like him? We walk as Jesus walked, like we walk as Jesus walked like the Father, and he kept his commands. We again we can see plenty of examples. We'll lean on some verses in John. In John 6 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 12, 49, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Turn over to John 14. Hold your finger again in uh, 1 John chapter 2, but move over to John 14. It's important when we talk about following Christ and walking like Christ that we truly understand how Christ walked. John 14, look at verse 7. This is a passage Jesus is showing his equality with God. But I want us to pick out some of the things that he says. Look at John 14, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Did you notice the language that Jesus used in this passage? The Father is seen through Jesus. He's seen through Jesus' words in verse 10. He's seen through Jesus' works in verse 11. These are the same things that reveal true believers. Through our words and through our works, we reveal the spirit that is within a true believer. Reveal the spirit that's within us. If we're to continue reading down to verse 41, or 21 of John 14, he who, has, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In obedience to God's commands, a believer should be doing things that look like Christ. Just as the Father was seen through Christ, so others should look at true believers and see Christ as well through us. Christ should be seen through the believer's works and the believer's words. What does our obedience look like? We already talked about the pattern, the directive. And it's not, it's an exact pattern, it's exact duplication, but it doesn't mandate perfection. It's important to note that our obedience, it's not a legal obedience. A legal obedience was necessity, it was necessary to fulfill the law, and no man was able to have that. But our obedience, that was the old covenant under the law. You had to obey the law perfectly. Jesus did that, but no one, can, no one could fulfill the law. The obedience being talked about here, it's not a legal obedience under the covenant of law. It's a gracious obedience. It's a desire to keep the commands of God. MacArthur will comment, he says, quote, A loving, sincere obedience full of defects is accepted by God, end quote. As we mentioned back in 1 John 2, or in 1 John, John knows that we will sin. He says that we need to confess those sins. We need to recognize them before God. But this obedience that we're talking about here, it's a state of mind. It's a desire for obedience. There will be stumbles. There will be disobedience. There will be sin. Because we are not yet achieving to what we one day will be. But those sins, those stumbles have been paid for from Christ's death on the cross. So now, by grace, God looks at the heart. It's our attitude. The Lord doesn't want the legal obedience from us. He wants the attitude of obedience. One commentator puts it this way, quote, The new covenant signals a relationship to God that is characterized not by cultic observances or the legalistic performance of the requirements, but by a heart that has been changed to agree truly and sincerely with God and to follow after him, end quote. Do you do things out of love for Christ, for others? Do you humble yourselves and put others above yourself and your own desires? Is it out of love? Even despite the freedoms or liberties, liberties that you may claim, do you put others in front of you? Spurgeon chimes in again. He says, quote, Sin promised freedom that brought us bondage. Grace now binds us and ensures us liberty. Obedience is the law of every spiritual nature. No man was ever so truly free as Jesus, and yet no man was so fully subservient to the heavenly will, end quote. Christ was truly free. 
He was God. He could do anything. Yet what did he do? He humbled himself and obeyed his father in every detail. I appreciate Warren Wearsby's commentary on obedience. It's a little lengthy, but allow me to share. He says, quote, Obedience to God's word is proof of our love for him. There are three motives for obedience. We can obey because we have to, because we need to, or because we want to. A slave obeys because he has to. If he doesn't obey, he will be punished. An employee obeys because he needs to. He may not enjoy his work, but he does enjoy getting his paycheck. But a Christian is to obey his heavenly father because he wants to. For the relationship between him and God is one of love. This is the way we learned obedience when we were children. First, we obeyed because we had to. If we didn't obey, we were spanked. But as we grew up, we discovered that obedience meant enjoyment and reward. So we started obeying because it met certain needs in our lives. And it was a mark of real maturity when we started obeying because of love. Baby Christians must constantly be warned or rewarded. Mature Christians listen to God's word and obey it simply because they love him. End quote. Why do you obey? Do you obey because you have to? To avoid punishment? Discipline? Do you obey because you need to? To look good? Or do you obey because you want to? We need to align our actions to Christ. It's a pattern of life, a matter of movement. But we've been talking about love and desire. So secondly, we need to align, you need to align your heart to Christ's. Align your heart to Christ's. This is a matter of motivation or desire. Actions start in the heart. Motivation and heart do matter. Actions alone are not true fruit. There needs to be a desire, and that desire must be placed on God as we love him. John says it well in John, 1 John 2, 15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also is lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Love needs to be on God and not on the world resulting in this life. The heart is the source of the actions. It's not enough to have superficial actions. It's not enough to check the box and say, I did or didn't do this command. It needs to come from the heart. We see Jesus addressing the heart in the, the context of the Pharisees. Of course, he was continually calling them hypocrites. But you may recall that he said in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has, for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said the heart is what matters, not just the actions, not just the outside. The fruit needs to come from the heart to be real fruit. It needs to come from the heart. Listen to Jesus' satisfaction to obey in John chapter 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was his food. That's what gave him sustenance and continued him moving. How do we generate a desire or love for God? Look at John, 1 John 3, verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. If we are fixated on Christ, we will desire him. Love prioritizes the one loved. If we desire to please him, we will put our own desires aside like Christ did. Glenn Barker 
says it this way. He says, quote, as obedience is practiced, so also God's love matures in us, end quote. So we find that a desire must be placed on God and purity must be existing in the heart of man. John writes, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When you see Christ for what he is, the natural response is to purify yourself because that's the end goal, to look like that someday. And not just as he appears, but to be progressing day by day to be more and more like Christ. It's interesting when we think about purifying oneself. If you were to purify or clean your house, if you were to empty the rummage out of it, you can't leave that one closet a disaster, can you? The house is not pure. It's not clean if that one closet is still filthy dirty. The one who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself, himself. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus tells us, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How does one see God with a pure heart? They must have a pure mind. That brings us to our third part. Align your mind to Christ's. Align your mind to Christ. This is a matter of mentality. John MacArthur will comment again. He says, quote, There's a great difference as the unsaved person walks in the vanity of his own mind and the saved person walks according to the mind of Christ. End quote. Remember that comment of recognition? A true believer who has his mind aligned with Christ looks different. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. It's part of being born of God. It's one of those traits that's passed down when we experience rebirth. Philippians 2.5, let this attitude or this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How do we align our minds with Christ? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We have to renew our minds. Jesus prayed for the renewing of the minds in John 17. In John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in his prayer to his Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. The Holy Spirit, through our time in the word, aligns our minds with Christ's. So if a believer is to obey the commands of God, he must desire to obey them out of love but he must also know God's commands. A true believer must spend time in the word. He must know the commands in order to obey them. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119, You know this verse, Your word have I treasured or hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you're not to sin, you have to have the word. You have to know God's commandments. Not only do you need to know God's commandments, but secondly, you need to dwell on God's commands. You need to dwell on God's commands. Affections get fixed on what we think about. If you think about God's commands, if you set your mind on things above, as Paul writes in Colossians 3.2, not on things on the earth, set your mind on them. Set your mind on things above. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, Paul writes. Dwell in God's commands. And thirdly, desire God's commands. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. Oh, may our prayers match the old hymn's words 
May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that, I may, so that all may see I triumph only through his power. All need to see us triumph. How do we walk like him? Do we need a wristband to remind us? It's not a bad idea. But we need something more than that. The wristband doesn't cut it. We have to know his word. We have to dwell on his word. We have to desire his word. We have to purify our hearts and grow in love. We have to act in obedience to the commands his word set before us. It's then we can walk in the same manner that he walked. And then we can show that we truly abide in Christ as we claim. So there's a requirement to resemblance. There's a route to resemblance. But note, lastly, there is a result, or there's a, sorry, there is a requirement, there is a route, and thirdly, there is a result of resemblance. Back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. One of the results of resembling Christ will be persecution. There'll be persecution. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Glenn Barker will comment, he says, quote, the author wants his readers to know that approval by the world is to be feared, not desired. To be hated by the world may be unpleasant, but ultimately it should reassure the members of the community of faith that they are loved by God, which is far more important than the world's hatred, end quote. Persecution will come. Persecution will come from the world because they didn't recognize Christ. But if we really look into this text, we'll notice that there were some in the church that John was writing to who went out. Why? Because they were not of us, John says. I would put it before you that you will not only suffer persecution from those on the outside, but I put it before you that you will also suffer persecution from those on the inside if they are not truly in Christ as well. You will suffer persecution. That's one result of resemblance. What's another result of resemblance? Persuasion. Persuasion. Walk the talk. Walk the talk. In Matthew 7, 17 and 18, so every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A tree cannot produce bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. There's a good tree and a bad tree. They each produce fruit according to what they are. You know, if we really think about it, unbelievers are great fruit inspectors, are they not? If you claim to be a Christian and you claim to be a good tree, but your fruit is bad, what are you? You're a hypocrite. And that will be caught very easily. If you claim to be a believer and you do not produce good fruit, unbelievers will notice and it will affect your witness. One great preacher said this, quote, our lives should persuade others. People reject Christianity because Christianity is ugly and offensive to them. So-called Christians who purpose, whose purpose and priorities don't look any different from the unbelieving world are part of the problem, end quote. And that came from our own pastor, Pastor Michael, from this pulpit not too long ago. A result of resemblance is persuasion. 
persuasion. And then finally, another result of resemblance is purpose. Purpose, when we resemble Christ, we look more like our final goal of glorification. We look more like Christ. We look more towards our final purpose. We are saved to be like Christ someday. We resemble him more. So the question's out there. Do you resemble your Redeemer? Do you walk like him? Do you act like him? Do you look like him? After a teaching segment and before an exam, it's a good idea sometimes to take a practice test, isn't it? So for application, let's take a test. John's calling us to test ourselves. Let's ask some questions of our actions, of our hearts, and of our minds. We're currently in church, so let's start with church. Why do you come to church? Do you come to learn the lesson or to loiter in the lobby? Do you come to check off your attendance or to challenge your heart? Are you looking for that pin on fruit of a check the box? Or are you here because you want to be here? Do you attend events to serve and evangelize or to socialize and eat? How do you come to church? How do you come to church? Do you dress for looks or out of love for others? You may say, that's a legalistic question, is it not? I'll challenge you that that's a loving question. Stay tuned for love next week. When you get together with other believers, do you get to grow? Do you get together to grow in understanding or to gain the latest gossip? So that's a church. What do you look like when you're at work? At work. Are you disgruntled and mediocre? Or are you the epitome of efficiency and effort? What do you look like at home? Men, are you lazy or are you leaders for your wives and families? Women, are you domineering or are you submissive to your husbands? Children, are you obstinate or are you obedient to your parents? While alone, do you read truth or watch trash? Do you pray a lot or do you play a lot? Do you read scripture to justify your actions or do you, just, or do you read scripture to draw out the truth and be changed into the image of Christ? Do you pin on fruit to look like Christ or do you produce fruit because you are in Christ? The exam can be difficult. This is a challenging series. Jesus tells his disciples that they can see the Father because they've seen him in John 14. John tells us that we can see true Christians when we see those who resemble Christ. So this is a big question. It's no small exam that we consider. It's not a high school elective exam for a grade. This is not a college entrance exam to see where you can go to school. This is not the bar exam or an MCAT exam that can determine if you can pursue a dream profession. This exam can cost you your life. It can cost you your life. As, as we close, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Maybe a familiar passage, but as we contemplate questioning if we're truly in Christ. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. 
and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. John will say that sin is lawlessness in 1 John. So today we have to ask ourselves the difficult question from 1 John. Do you resemble your Redeemer? Do you resemble your Redeemer? If not, change that today because your future may be very dim. Repent, confess, and beg for forgiveness. Turn to Christ. If you do, thank God that he sent his spirit to work through you, to change you each day. Thank him that he is the vine and you are the branch and you receive sustenance daily from him to produce fruit. Because it's by that fruit that we know who is a true believer. It's by that fruit that we can tell who possesses Christ instead of just who professes Christ. It's a difficult question from a difficult exam. But what we never want to hear is depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, because I never knew you. So I challenge you, take the tough exam today. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, this is a difficult topic. It's a difficult exam to take, to look intently in the mirror and not forget what we see. But Father, we do thank you for your word that we can look into. We thank you for the example of Christ that we can look at. And Father, we do pray that we can look inside and answer the question appropriately. And Father, you know that we are human. Even those who truly possess you stumble. Help us daily to recognize that. Help us daily to confess that and to turn back to you. Help it to be a driving factor to change our lives that each day we may become more and more aware of our sin so that we can progress towards that goal of Christ-likeness each day. Father, and if there's any here that do not know you, if they take the exam and say, I truly do not possess Christ, Lord, I pray that today might be the day of their salvation. We know that you've come and called for repentance. Your law has exposed the filthiness of sin and lawlessness in our, in our lives, Lord. So may that come into view even tonight. 
or if those are listening online, Lord, may it come to them and may they recognize their sin. And may they recognize, Father, that you sent Jesus on a mission to come and pay that penalty on the cross so that sins may be forgiven. And Father, help those to call out to you in forgiveness and to put their hope in you, to claim your righteousness as theirs. And Lord, we pray that you would birth them so they might practice righteousness, Father, as you are righteous. So Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit that lives within us, Lord. We pray that as we take this exam, he will be at work in the lives of true believers, Lord, to grant us the assurance that is needed. Because with that assurance, Lord, we have power. We have confidence to go out to make disciples. So Lord, may that be the intent and the focus of our week. As we leave this place, as we leave this opportunity to gather as believers, to be edified, Lord, help us as we go this week to evangelize, to share your word with others. Help us to have the attitude of Christ. Help us to look like him. May we be a light in a dark world that stands out. So, Father, we thank you for the time together, and we thank you for your continued work in us each day. And we ask for your strength continually. In your son's name we do pray. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.